You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 142, and we are going to be talking about City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold. Originally, we wanted to talk about City Slickers because it had fought, we both had fond memories of it. But when we went to procure it to watch it for this podcast, it is unavailable anywhere except to purchase. And honestly, sorry, Billy and company, I didn't love it that much. Yeah, $15 is a lot for a film that I probably won't watch too many more times. So so we thought, all right, we'll pivot. Let's watch City Slickers 2. It's available on Apple for only $3 to rent. So here we go. Let's just, let's just get into it. Ron Underwood did City Slickers 1. Paul Whelan did City Slickers 2. And he brought us 1987's Leonard Part 6. That was Eddie Murphy? I th- or, no, I thought it was Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah. that's Yeah. 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 <laughs> Maid of Honor um, and many Mr. Bean films and episodes. Oh, from- okay. Mr. Bean, that's consistent. <laughs> it, st- it still stars uh, Billy Crystal, Jack Palance, Daniel Stern, John Lovitz, Patricia Wedig. And Jane Meadows plays the voice of Billy's mother. Oh, okay. So we don't ever see her on screen, but she comes through the... The DP for this film is Adrian Biddle. He did 1986's Aliens and 91's Thelma and Louise. The writers for this film are Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. Very prolific writers in that era. We talked about them for Night Shift, and they also did Parenthood and Splash. And Billy is credited for some writing on uh, City Slickers 2. So the synopsis for the sequel to City Slickers is one year after their first adventure, Mitch Robbins and his friends discover a treasure map that belonged to their late trail guide, Curly, and they set out to discover its secrets. And so as a producer, you're saying, boy, that Palance guy was quite the big hit, but we killed him off before we knew the movie would be that big. What do we do to bring him back? (laughs) And so you talk to your friends who work in the soap business, and they tell you, you know what we always do is the twin. Nobody questions the twin. (laughs) If it works for them, it'll work for us. Yeah, yeah. So this movie only has one tagline. Only one, okay. They're back in the saddle. Doesn't tell me much at all about the film, but okay. Okay. (laughs) Did you notice that a cast member from the first movie was not listed when I read them for the second movie? Yeah, there was the one guy that went on the trip with him that didn't show up the second time. So, <laughs> I forget the actor's name. Do you want me to say that on air? No, no, no. So Bruno Kirby did not return to reprise his role of Ed from the original film because he is highly allergic to horses. And he required constant allergy treatments to do, this, to do his scenes for the first movie. So he said 
that um, they had air purifiers and he was doing steroids and Mm -hmm. like everything they could to get him through the first film. So I think when the second one came around, he was like, thanks, but no. How is he with cows? (laughs) I'm sorry. That sounds like a stereotypical producer joke. What's his position on goats? I guess Billy Crystal clashed with Paul Wieland in the making of this film. And so that made for a contentious set. And this film just struggled. And in doing some research, I found a quote from Roger Ebert that kind of, I think, explains pretty well what's going on. So Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times wrote City Slickers 2, subtitled The Legend of Curly's Gold, makes the mistake of thinking that we care more about the gold than about the city slickers. Like too many sequels, it has forgotten what the first film was really about. City Slickers 2 is about the MacGuffin instead of the characters. I think that's perfectly said. I don't always agree with Ebert, but that time I think he captured it perfectly because the gold should be the MacGuffin, right? The premise of the first film, the premise, but the the payoff, I should say, is you take these fish out of water characters and by plopping them into this different environment, they discover who they are and they grow, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think in this film the characters grow. Yeah. Also in doing research for it and learning some different things about the actors, I have a theory. And so here's my theory. So Billy's horse that he rode in the first one, he also rode in the second one. And when the filming of the first one was complete, his agent bought him and the horse's name was Beechnut. And he bought him Beechnut. And Billy kept that horse until he died at 27. Daniel Stern, after making the first one, also bought a cattle ranch that he still owns, at least at the um, time of the video or Mm -hmm. article I read. He still owned it and he had 70 head of cattle. So I think that two things were going on. I think the actors enjoyed the process they probably enjoyed the location billy talks about seeing jack palance and shane and it was it made such an impact on him so i think they fell in love with the genre they fell in love with you know kind of like just each other and filming and they were probably trying to recapture that i mean if if he enjoyed the horse and kept it I think, you know, it's like, oh, I get to go hang out with my horse and play cowboy for three months. Sign me up. Two words. Ocean's 12. (laughs) I just wonder if that's what was going on. Oh, absolutely. And I heard an actor, and I wish I could remember who because I want to give them credit. But they said the movies that where filming was like a party and, and it was the best experience ever weren't the best films they were in. And, oh, interesting. Um, I, I think what you're getting at is hanging out with your friends is fun, but it's maybe something different than making a good film. And that's weird to say as we're in pre-production for making a film <laughs> with our friends. But I think it it's not that you're hanging out with your friends is the problem, but if your maybe focus is more on that enjoyment then the material, right, you can still have a fantastic time, but maybe aren't going to make the best film. 
because the focus is, is it becomes in some sense like a home video to capture you hanging out with your friends. Right. And in this case, I, I, I think the Ebert quote is pretty accurate. And that maybe is just because uh, they were enjoying recreating the experience of the first one. But the first one, uh, you know, you could even argue if you need uh, tension to be creative, perhaps poor Bruno Kirby's allergic reaction was the case. I mean, just talking out loud here, but is it as simple as everybody knew that Bruno was suffering? So, like, we need to be on the top of our game Mm. as few takes as possible to try to get Bruno through this. And then the second time around, they're like, hey, we love this, right? We own this hor- these horses and we're hanging out and having a gay old time. And then, you know, you lose your, your focus. Mm-hmm. Why don't you kick us off with your pickup line and then we will talk about the cinematography and the writing of this film. Hi, Curly. Who says that? Mitch says that. Wait, I thought the first scene was him and his wife in bed. I don't know to tell you, I have written down hi, Curly. But you don't you don't remember the first scene either. I don't remember where it comes from. There is a very long opening credit with animated, like, horse and, and cowboy and stuff. So okay. I'm not remembering exactly what the first scene was. Well, that tells you all you need to know if we don't even remember this. And I think we watched it like a week ago. Okay. There is a shot of Mitch on a white... Wait of a white horse running and Mitch is following it and it's beautiful. I wrote down. Right. Yeah. That's the opening scene. And he, the horse takes him to like a grave and he sees Curly there and he says, hi, right. Curly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So when the movie starts, Mitch seems to be perfectly fine. His friend Phil is working at the radio station. Yeah, their radio station. And but Phil isn't doing so well. In fact, he we get an exposition that Mitch is going to have to fire him probably, and he doesn't want to because Phil has been divorced from Arlene. Mm-hmm. So I found in the trivia for I think it was the first one. It reminded me. Apparently, Phil gets together with Helen Slater in the first film, which is a bit about kicking his coverage, to be quite honest. And so um, I don't know if he was already separated from Arlene at that point. Uh, She maybe didn't appreciate him getting together with Helen Slater. Um, But yeah, Phil is not doing well at his job or in his life. So that sets up the awkwardness of Mitch having to fire his good friend who needs this job more than anything. Mm Mm-hmm. So they do the sad gag. I felt like this was a common gag in like, I guess the eighties and nineties where the wife calls in and she's going to talk sexy (laughs) and somehow crazy enough, it gets patched through and he's either he's on speaker and the boss is there. Or in this case, there's a whole conference room full of people and like were wives just like wild and they didn't go, Hey, are you alone? Or <laughs> right. Or did, did, did Mitch's secretary not say, Oh, this sounds like Mitch's wife, not the investor. Right. So, <laughs> Hey Mitch, I think this is your wife. Pick up the handset. Yeah. Right? So it just, right. it felt a little really eyes. Well, I'll just be honest. That's like, they weren't trying that hard. Yeah. That joke is, is just not, I think Babalu could do better. But also, I guess, yeah, Gans and Babalu, was this not as much of a thing? 
I don't know. Is it did it get played out? And so it's not their fault. They were the ones that originated it. Like to go back in time, yeah, I can't fair. remember. That's fair. You know, I don't know. It just having watched this movie today, it was just like it felt played out. Yeah. Okay. So the guys find a map in Hurley's in Curly's hat, and they decide they're going to go back and relive the joys of the cattle ranch. You know, like the the spirit of adventure and they are going to go find the gold. Phil and, or, and Mitch are completely, if they go to the library for some reason, I can't remember, but probably like research to figure out. Yeah, they're doing some sort of research. And this oh, about is, a train robbery, I believe. Yeah, that was referenced. And this, this is another thing that really irritated me is Mitch and Phil are incapable of speaking even at a regular tone in a library. Even at a regular they're, tone. They're just shouting just each other constantly. And there's this gag where this guy keeps shushing them. And as adults, maybe the first time you do it, but then you're like, okay, we either need to go outside if we want to yell at each other, or we can just lower our volume like a normal person. There is no explanation for why they were being idiots like right. that. Yes. <laughs> And then, speaking of idiot, when they get out there, Phil is telling the guys at, I guess, like a trading post. It's like this place where they're buying supplies and renting burrows. Yeah, and- I, I refer to it in my notes as the burrow rental. <laughs> and so Phil comes out and he's obviously has just told this man who kind of has all of the classic markings of this is going to be a bad guy. Sure. You know, kind of like just visually, you know, I tip my hat right. to to uh, costume and makeup and stuff because we just get a vibe that maybe these right. people aren't yeah. on the up and up. And so Bill, um, Mitch completely loses his mind because he's just like, what are you doing, Phil? Don't tell everybody what yeah. we're doing. Uh, I, I would say, though, even if the guy looked trustworthy, if you are got a map to $20 million, you don't share that info with anyone. <laughs> anybody. I mean, this is... This is goes beyond just like okay he's a, he's a bit of a schmuck. This is I mean that's ludicrous. So uh, this I think really it comes back to what Ebert was saying is I feel like plot like of the oh there's gold and they do a thing and then they get the reveal that that was fine very straightforward. It's like they lost sight of the characters and so was it a case of we're gonna put some gags together. Uh, string some gags together and, and call it a joke. I just like really like f- the, the, the characters, in my opinion, went completely missing in this until the very end. But was this a copy? I believe this was a copy of the first one, having not seen it in like 30 <laughs> years. Yeah. I can't tell you exactly, but the part at the end where Daniel Stern, no, John Lovitz's character jumps in front of a bullet, basically, for his brother, Mitch. Was it? Yeah, it was Lovitz, not Stern. Yeah, Lovitz. Glenn, I think, is his character's name. And so there's this moment where he's like, you saved my life. And he was like, yeah, but it was a fake bullet. And he goes, but you didn't know that at the time. And so there is this moment that like, oh, the brothers really care for one another. Like, it was like at the very end, they were trying to have this moment. But now as I, you know, was processing this thought, I was wondering... Did that happen in the first one and they were just reviving an old an old storyline? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think Lovitz's character was in the first one. I thought that he basically replaced Bruno Kirby. But I, I don't feel like it was set up that diving for the bullet to be a natural 
consequence of the Lovitz's character. Again, this I, I it just felt like it was more a string of bits because he was so obnoxiously useless and a pain in the butt and all this stuff. And they even have the, the, the gag about like, Oh no, it, like it's not, who could it be? And then tell me it's not my brother or something like that. And he walks in there. Hey, hello, Mitch. It, so he's very much was set up to be kind of that character. So that's where to me, I, I felt like, yeah, it was kind of a touching moment, but it didn't follow naturally from my perspective. And now that I think about it too, there's like the snake bite on the butt. So gosh, more skits, right? And I would love to talk to the writers because I know they're much more talented they're very than that. Funny. Yeah. So, you know, was it a case of you didn't have a lot of time, right? Uh, we, like I said, I mentioned Billy had issues with the director. So, you yeah. know, I, yeah, there was a lot going on here. But it's interesting when we talk about them enjoying the first one so much that, We've, we've heard this from, you know, many people before. You really can't tell while filming it what it's going to be like. Is it going to be good or not? Right. And it's hard to make a fantastic film. It's, it's you know, you work hard and you get a good film most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, City Slickers in some sense was, was lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's hard to follow that. Absolutely. And I think there was a lot of excitement after City Slickers you know, they were nominated for a ton of awards and I have a funny award story later when I list through the awards that, that this one got. And, you know, Jack Palance got on the the stage of the Academy Awards and he did that one arm push up, and then like his career went, you know, like he was the it guy yeah, for a while yeah, during this push time. Up like, was yeah. A meme. Exactly. Still probably is. We should try to revive it. Anyway, when Curly comes out of the grave, I noticed that it was a jump scare. So it was kind of um, an editing choice. Is there anything else in cinematography and writing that you'd like to talk about first? Well, there were a couple of montages. Uh, We always like to talk about those. There's a slow motion horse chase montage, but my favorite is the following the map montage because it, it reminds me of the classic gag of traveling by map which our friend Dustin brought up from the Muppet movie, but is most famous, I think, for Indiana Jones, right? So maps are a big deal. There is a crane shot in that library. It's a big open space. They obviously brought a crane in, which is, from a production standpoint, boy, must have that have been a lot of work. Or were they on the second floor, like a balcony? Could have been. I felt like we saw the camera move enough where I thought oh, okay. it was a crane. Okay. But amazingly, for a film which is kind of lighthearted, there's a reverse Scorsese on Mitch right before the stampede. You, you don't see that a whole lot, but I, I think almost never in a comedy. Uh, so that was interesting. Do you want to... I don't know if everybody knows what that means. So it it's where you coordinate, you zoom in the opposite direction of the camera movement. So the idea is that the actor stays of a constant size in the frame, but then the background moves drastically because of the change in the zoom level. It is very hard to do. It is, yeah, really hard to get it right. I remember in film school, we were so excited right after we learned it and we were given an assignment. I think maybe they specifically told us to try it. Because at the same time you're moving the camera, which is very hard to do, 
Unless you probably have like dolly tracks, quite yeah. honestly. You have dolly tracks with at least one, if not two skilled grips on the bar uh, so that they can move it at a consistent, smooth pace. Or a troll. A trolley? Is that what they call it? Which at the film department had one and students would rent them out. It's this huge platform with these giant, like thick tires and it's heavy. And we would, we would each rent it out once, like each group, you would rent it out once. And then it was such a pain in the neck (laughs) <laughs> buttocks took us to get to and from and certain students needed to have the right kind of car to lift it up and it's heavy on purpose because right. it needs for to stability. create a smooth trend mm-hmm. you would do it once you would try your shot it would probably almost never work or you would run out of time because it's the shot that you got to get all your coverage and then when you don't have your cut co- you know once you have everything done then you're like oh let's try that reverse scorsese shot but you always run out of time for that so like i said you rented it once and then you went never again <laughs> right and, and to make it worse your grips have to move the dolly yes but at the same time your ac has to to zoom to, yeah and depending on the lens, we'll also have to focus, focus while yeah. zooming. Yep. It is and that's nuts. The other thing you brought up, we probably didn't have enough people because right. we were usually groups of like four. And so you have a camera person, a sound person. Sometimes one of those four was your actor. Right. So there's one person left, maybe, that can move that damn cart. And it, like I said, it was heavy. And it's heavy to begin with, but then you put a student and a tripod and a camera yeah. on it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> you're, you're giving me flashbacks. And so th- <laughs> this is in the category of why do you see 200 names at the end of a yes, film? Yes, exactly. <laughs> because for stuff like this, and then I mentioned earlier that the crane in the library. Yeah. That yeah, would yeah, have yeah, been, yeah. there would have been a couple grips at least on the crane in addition to all the camera crew. And it's just, it, it's surprising how these things that we take for granted as a viewer add up in terms of time and people and money. Um, which is again, why producers probably are all bald with graying hair and high blood pressure because all this stuff costs. And every time somebody comes up with a brilliant idea, as I like to say, it gets a visit from the good idea fairy then the the producer just hears dollars, right? So, but in this case, you know, it is a very cool shot. And so the cinematographer for this film definitely, you know, took it serious and tried to do some neat stuff, right? There's some kind of like stunt work, but action work with the, the, the little mining cart, right? There's some of that stuff. There's outside where they do some some clever shots where you know you move the camera and it makes a a rock formation look like a thing so definitely i i feel like you know the camera department did a good job yes yes very much so are you ready to move into costumes let's okay so you made note of and i do you want to talk about this bit of trivia You, you can go ahead okay so billy crystal in his character mitch wears a Mets hat throughout the film, but in reality, Crystal is a diehard Yankees fan. And is it because he doesn't like Mitch? Is it because he doesn't want to think that he is at all like Mitch? Why wouldn't you put your team's hat on? Why would you put... 
I believe that it was because the Mets helped with a charity and he was paying them back. Oh, did you read that? What charity? Yeah, I read that somewhere. There was a charity of some sort, presumably that he was associated with, and the Mets had helped out. So, so just, he kind of had to. Well, I don't know or if he, he had to, like but it was, yeah, he was trying to be a mensch. I did love the scenery, and a little bit later I'll talk about where it was filmed. And even, I said, even the stirring score at the end when they find the gold doesn't save this ending. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had this beautiful, like, violins, like, ooh, you know, like you were yeah. supposed to get yeah. all... In the swoon. How about some head trauma? Do we have any head trauma? We, we do have a little bit of head trauma. Glenn and Mitch drop Phil after he asks them to suck the rattlesnake poison out of his butt. That's a classic Ew. bit. Mitch crashes his mine cart. Gotta assume there's some head trauma there. Mm-hmm. I believe he goes flying out of it. And the bad guys get lots and lots of head trauma in the fight with the boys. Okay. And how about a smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. We did have a smoochie. Barbara kisses Mitch in bed on the morning of his birthday. Aw, that's sweet. Yeah. And driving review? Uh, Not a whole lot because they're mostly horses in this film, but it looks like it's a 93 Jeep Cherokee that Mitch drives, which maybe is reasonable for that era in a suburb. I assumed it was New Jersey. It shows the radio station being in New York City, but he obviously lives in a suburb. But it could have been maybe like what Long Island? I don't know. I don't really didn't really. However, they told us the name, and uh, there was a train commute, so maybe people who are familiar with the New York area could tell me where that is. And uh, a, a wagon was harmed in the making of this film. That wagon did not survive the the fall off the cliff. And I always think when when they do that in the movie, mm-hmm. who cleans up? The wreck at the bottom. Because they can't just oh, walk away and leave I know. the wreckage when that, there. When that wagon went off, I thought the exact same thing. Right. Because I know they're in this beautiful, like, either state or federal park. Right. And I was like, I'm pretty sure you can't just leave the wagon bits. <laughs> yeah, laying so, down there. Holy cow. Or do you have to pay a huge sum, I guess? Well, I don't know. And, so I think the answer is a bunch of PAs. They send them yeah. on burrows down to the bottom of the canyon, and they got to figure out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. All right, shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. All right, before we go to our regular numbers, I just want to say that a million dollars in gold in 1908 would have been worth approximately $18,541,000 in 1994. And today it would be more like $63 million. Wowzers. And then this film was uh, released theatrically on the same day as Speed in 1994. And Beth Grant, who played Lois in this film, was also in Speed as Helen. She did a lot of work that day doing press for both films. She did. The budget for this film, I saw, let's see, it was $40 for this one. Originally, City Slickers, the budget was $26 And... It brought in uh, 124 million, so you can see why. You know, in 1994, a film that did that well, Oof, they would yeah. do it again. Sadly, they did not get their same return because their 40 million only brought in 43 million. Yeah. So with marketing, that was probably considered a loss. Can't all be winners. It gets a 5.6 out of 10 on IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes, it's very rotten at 15%. And as with audiences, they were a little more generous, but didn't even get it up over that fresh 
threshold. It's 31%. It's just under two hours at an hour and 56 minutes. It's rated PG 13 and it is listed as a comedy Western. So Jack Palance infamously won the Oscar, as we mentioned before, for um, best supporting role and Billy won an, an American comedy award. And then Jack won the golden globe and Billy was up for best actor. And Billy told this sweet story of they're sitting at the golden globes and Jack wins and he goes up on stage and he gives his, you know, speech and he said it was pretty short and the golden globe girl, you know, she's supposed, she brings on the award and then she's supposed to usher them back to the press room so they can talk to the foreign press and Jack comes back down and sits next to Billy and, <laughs> and Billy says, no, Jack, you have to go, you have to go to the press room. And he says, F the foreign press. <laughs> he goes, I want to watch you win your Golden Globe. Aww, Isn't that sweet? That is. So next, I don't know if it was the exact next uh, award, but, but they come around to the best actor and, and the best actor for the Golden Globe for the best actor goes to Morgan Freeman. And hmm. Jack gets up and Billy goes, Jack, where are you going? And he goes, I got to go to the press room. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. this film did not do so well. Uh, B- Billy did win an award. He won the Razzie for the worst Oops. sequel. And the Stinger's Bad Movie Awards awarded it the worst sequel. So this one didn't do as well as the first. Right. I was going to mention the filming locations. It took place in Arches National Park, which is beautiful. I can attest. Mm -hmm. It was uh, filmed in Moab and Goblin Valley State Park in Utah. It was also um, a scene was in New York City. Oh, Las Vegas. But I realized I don't think we saw them like in Las Vegas. I think we saw stock footage of casinos. And then you see Billy's on the phone with his wife. You think he's going to be in Las Vegas, but then they pan. It's a shot from down below. So all you see is him on the phone and you see the sky. And then the camera comes up to his eye level and you see he's in the middle of like Moab or arches or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know if they really went to Vegas or just, Maybe they went to Vegas, a second unit went to Vegas to get those shots of the casinos and they didn't use stock footage. Yeah, perhaps. Right. Yeah. So let's see. I think I covered everything on my notes. I would love if some of our listeners have done this and it's really helped our podcast. If you like what you've been listening to, we are nearing three years doing this. We've done 142 episodes. We're getting close to that 150 mark. I would love it if you would go on whatever listening platform that you happen to listen to us on and leave us a review. A five-star review would be great because that will help us. We are hitting some of the charts in Great Britain and um, Kuwait of all places and Israel and Japan. We've been doing pretty good. So we are super excited that you're listening. Who knew that the Kuwaitis were such fine listeners of our podcast about movies? I know. That we've was, been like number 15 on yeah, their charts well, for many weeks. So thank you to everybody. Yes. Thank you to our and, foreign listeners as well as those in the U.S. It's amazing when we stop and think about that we're closing in on 150 episodes. I know. Right. And the great thing, in my opinion, is 
There's a bunch of people who keep making movies, so there's always more to talk about. I know. I love it. I love it. We're never going to run out of movies. All right. Thank you, everybody. And never forget. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 